Hey, everybody. Welcome to You Were Born for This podcast with uh, Father John Ricardo. That's me. I'm your host. I'm here with Nick Jorgensen, Mary Guilfoyle, my co-hosts, where we talk about anything and everything related to transforming parishes. Nick, what's our topic today? Father, we are, uh, we are, I'm excited. I think Mary's mm-hmm. pumped. This is a great topic. It is Rescued Part 1, God's Shocking and Unexpected Response to Sin. But before we dive in, Father John, will you open us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray for the grace that uh, we try to encourage people to ask for with us. So, Father, we ask that as we uh, gaze upon your Son and all that he's done for us in his great love, uh, that we would grow in unshakable confidence in him who is Lord of heaven and earth. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Father. All right, so we're in the middle of breaking open our series on the gospel, right? We've been talking about created and captured. Created uh, is another way to say that would be um, the goodness of creation. Mm-hmm. And so we pondered and talked about just the majesty of God's creation and t- t- with really the hope of having wonder over who God is and what he's done in creating, right? And then we talked about captured, which is really the consequence of sin. And, uh, you know, another way to say that is we've, um, we've sold ourselves into powers, into slavery, to powers we cannot compete against, right? So we talked about how bad the bad news is, and uh, that was dark, it was heavy, but it was, it's so important because we have to ha- know how bad the bad is to know how good the good news is. So today, now we're going to talk about rescued. Okay, so thanks, Nick. Um, I just want to offer uh, a reminder to those of you who are listening right now, because this content is so rich, we want to adjust um, our format just a little bit uh, to give Father John the time he needs um, to just really break open the good news, because the bad news is as bad as it is. We want to give you a double portion, right, of the good news. Um, and so given all of that, we're going to talk today about the first part of Rescued. And Father, you're going to talk about the incarnation, right, and then the passion. So can you take us away? Yeah, we're gonna, let's do this. How about today we're going to look at why did Jesus come and what happened on the cross? Or maybe another way to think of that is what's happening when Jesus is on the cross. And then next time when we get together, we're just going to ask the simple question, so what? Mm. Like, what difference does any of this stuff make for mm, my life yeah. right now? What are the practical, real-life, real-time applications of what Jesus did? So go back to where we ended last time. We, we suggested that really kind of horrific image of being in the hands of a trafficker. And so with that in mind, of having been, you know, captured defenseless, hopeless, into this scene that we try to encourage us to to pray about comes this word from God through the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Chapter 49, God says this, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken And the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you. And then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's a promise, people. God is promising that he's going to do something about the situation that we as a race are in because of our own doing at the moment of our rebellion back when our first parents sold ourselves into slavery. God is going to rescue us from a tyrant. The tyrant is not a political party. It's not another race. It's not another country. The tyrant is the devil and the powers of sin and death. Just 
zoom in for a moment, if you will, on that word that ends this passage, when God identifies himself as our redeemer. Oftentimes in the church, you know, this is one of the things that we do. We use language that we mistakenly think people know what we're talking about, but I don't know that we always do. So we use words like salvation or grace, or in this case, redeemer. So what's redeemer mean? The Hebrew word here is the word goel. So a goel is the nearest male kinsman or the oldest male kinsman who has certain responsibilities in the people of Israel with regards to his relatives. There's a number of responsibilities, but two in particular are worth noting. One, if someone in his family is either uh, abducted and captured and brought into slavery, or if they sell themselves into slavery, this person, the Goel, which we translate into English as Redeemer, has the obligation to buy them back. And a second task that the Goel or the Redeemer has is if his family member is murdered, this person has the responsibility of avenging that murder. So with that in mind, now, now hear what God says, I am your Goel, I am your Redeemer. In other words, God is saying, I am making myself to be your closest kinsman, and I am considering you to be my family to such a degree that I think I, the one who made the universe, that's 46 billion light years across, I consider you so important that I will do all that it takes to buy you back from slavery or to deliver you from slavery, which he does. And not only that, but he avenges, if you will, the murder of our race. How does he do that? Well, who's the murderer of our race? We could answer that maybe in one of two ways, either Satan or death with a capital D. What does God do in the person of Jesus by his life, death, and resurrection? He kills death. So with that in mind, let's dive in, okay? So we want to first look at why did Jesus come? So we've suggested early on when we were talking about the kerygma, which is the Greek word for proclamation, which is the gospel, that one of the most powerful ways, at least that I find, to try to get into this story, the big story of the universe and why we're here and why it's messed up and what God's done about it, is to look at a picture of the Allies landing at D-Day. The reason for that is because when you see this, you instinctively know these people are not there for coffee, they're not there to visit the beach, they're not there to see the Mona Lisa, they're there because they're there to fight. Why did Jesus come? Why did God become a man? And the, the answer scripturally is the same reason. God became a man to fight. I know that's not how we typically talk about this or think about it, but, you know, we look at Jesus lying in a manger on Christmas, and, and we're thinking, okay, here's God, he's there, he's teaching us how to be kind, he's, he's telling us to love, he's giving us all this great teaching, he does some miracles, he tells some parables, and then, like, I don't know, there's this really unfortunate bad week in his life where he gets end up, you know, nailed to a cross, and then, boom, suddenly he's alive again. And we don't know what to make of all of that. that that's a maybe a really oversimplified way to say all this, but I think the, the, the week of the passion causes people tremendous confusion if we don't understand from the get-go why he's there to begin with. So where do we find evidence of this in Scripture? Well, the first letter of St. John, chapter 3, John says this, or rather the Holy Spirit says this through John, the reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy 
the works of the devil. In other words, God didn't become a man to tell stories, although he did. And he didn't become a man to do miracles, although he did. He became a man to do something and to do something about the one who holds our race in captivity. Jesus tells us this himself huh? in the Gospel of John. Shortly before he enters into his passion, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of the world, which is one of the ways that Jesus refers to Satan, be cast out. Well, who's, who's going to cast him out? Well, Jesus is. Or think of, say, the first miracle in the Gospel of Mark. So the Gospel of John, the first miracle is 180 gallons of water being turned into wine. But in the Gospel of Mark, the first miracle is the driving out of a demon. And the, the demon says to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? And though Jesus doesn't answer the question out loud in words, he drives the demon out of the man, thereby freeing the man. And, you know, like, I always wish the Holy Spirit would put parentheses in certain passages in Scripture. This is one of them, like, the parentheses should be, uh, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I have. I've come exactly to do that, to destroy you. <laughs> Or think of uh, another passage, something like the, uh, the Benedictus in Luke chapter 1. So those of us who pray the Liturgy of the Hours, for example, we pray this passage every single morning where uh, Zechariah, St. John the Baptist's father, finally begins to speak after John is born, and he gives this huge hymn of praise to God, saying what God is going to do. He has come to his people and set them free. Free from what? free from sin, free from death, free from hell, free from Satan's grip. He's, he has come because he promised he would save us from our enemies, who are our enemies. Again, it's not the other political party. It's the enemy of our race, huh? from the hands of all who hate us, who hates us, sin and death, and to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. That's us. That's our race. We dwell in that. Or again, Jesus, both in, uh, or not both, but in all Luke, Matthew and Mark, he drives out a demon in another instance, different than the one we just looked at. And after he does it, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of doing uh, these deliverances through the power of the devil. And Jesus says, that's just absurd. It's not possible. If Satan's divided against himself, then his kingdom can't stand. And then he tells this parable. And the parable goes like this. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoil. So let's try to make sense of this parable. Who is the strong man? The strong man is Satan. What is his palace? His palace is the world. What are his goods? His goods are us, the human race. This is why we encouraged people when we looked at captured, to pray for the grace of despair. Odd as that sounds, because if God had not acted in the person of his son, we would be without any hope. But listen to how Jesus describes himself. When one stronger than he, this is not how most of us think of Jesus. Certainly not how most men think of Jesus. Most men think of Jesus as being kind and gentle and patient and loving and merciful. And he is all those things. But Jesus is so much more than that. Jesus is absolutely and utterly unconquerable. He is the one who is stronger than the strong man. And he's not only stronger, he assails him. 
So God becomes a man, why? To assail the enemy. Why? To overcome him so as to take away his spoil. In other words, to let you and me go free. That's in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. So if you can imagine in your mind, you got a picture of the allies landing at D-Day, and you're asking the question, okay, why'd they land? Obviously, they landed there to fight. Then you look at an image of Jesus in the manger. Why is he there? Why did he land? Oh, well, he he landed to fight as well. And so as one of the authors uh, that I love greatly has put it, the incarnation, that is the act of God becoming flesh and growing in the womb of a woman whom he had made, that's the invasion of one kingdom, the kingdom of death and sin and hell, by a stronger kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. So Erasmo Leva Merikakis, he's a great uh, commentator on the scriptures. In a commentary in the Gospel of Matthew, he, he says simply this, Christ did not come merely to teach a new doctrine about how we should behave or to set an example of selflessness, although he did do those things, right? Christ came above all to perform a deed, the destruction of death and the establishment of an everlasting kingdom of life. Or C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he says simply, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise. So why does God become a man? Why does Jesus come? Jesus comes to invade a kingdom. He comes to assail the strong man. He comes to overcome the strong man so that you and I can experience freedom and become the creatures that you and I were made to be and therefore be the instruments that God wants us to be to help bring about recreation in this world until the rightful king one day finally returns. So, Having looked at that briefly, and I know it's brief, let's just try to turn our attention to what exactly is happening on the cross. Father John, I just I just really want to interrupt real quick. This is this is so meaty and inspiring. I'm sitting here, I mean, I've I've heard this, Mary, I mean what, like a dozen times now? Right. I've been so blessed with that. But even now, I, I really am being moved and touched. Um I'm I'm hearing you talk about how God sees me, Nick mm. Jorgensen, as next of kin. And not only just next of kin, but as a result of Satan's attack on, on me, you. of sin and death coming against me, he's going to go fight for me. And not just fight for me, he is fighting for me, but he's going he's gonna to avenge my, my slavery and, 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 and what it was that was lost in the garden and is always lost, right? So I'm just being touched by that and thinking especially to my brothers out there, like, I don't, I don't know what your image of Jesus is or has been, and maybe you've already had all this, praise God, but, um, I mean, so often, uh, Jesus is, I got sometimes like a passive type of figure, or, or, you know, like, yeah, thank you so much, Lord, love you, um, and then I'm going to still keep looking at Marvel <laughs> to find my image of, You're like, power or something, right? right? That's just, just silly. Um, but since, since this, this, this uh, image of Jesus has come into my life just in this last, if you will, year almost, right? Maybe just past a year. Um, I've said all the more to my son, Noah, he's five years old and uh, he's all about power right now, right? Like he'll dress up as, um, I don't know, a power ranger or some other action figure in a, some kind of costume running around the house. You know, I'm Superman, I'm, I'm Batman and look at my muscles. And I'm like, at nighttime I put him to bed and I'm praying with him and I just say, son, 
He's like, he's like, Daddy, I'm strong, right? I'm like, yeah, you're so strong. He's like, I'm stronger than you. I'm like, oh, not quite yet, but you probably will be. And then I go, <laughs> but, I go but Noah, who has all the power? Yeah. And he always says, Jesus has all the power. And it just makes me think of Jesus does have all the power, and he's the greatest warrior, and he's, and he's crushed the greatest enemy who we, have, we are powerless against aside from, aside from him giving us his power, right? Anyway, just, just so powerful to think of the Lord as this mighty king warrior who isn't calling me to go to battle with him. That's just a whole different kind of image I wanna, uh, I'm supercharged by. So, you know, so for, for guys, it's that superhero. Who's your superhero? I, I, think for, I think for myself, and I don't know about my sisters out there who are listening to this, but um, for me, we were always looking for our Prince Charming or our knight in shining armor. And I don't think there's a woman out there listening to this who doesn't want to feel uh, pursued. And for me, the word that comes to my mind as I listen to you unpack this, Father John, is protected, filled with hope, worthy of pursuit, seen, worth fighting for. And so in reality, when we look at Jesus on the cross, like, I mean, it might sound kind of lame. Again, I'm going back to my, to my young uh, my younger life where you read stories of, you know, a damsel in distress who's waiting to be rescued. But the truth is we needed to be rescued from something far more than anything in a storybook, right? And uh, so that he is, like, like, he is my mighty king. He's my knight in shining armor. And he saved me from things I could never save myself from. And even as I'm just listening to you, Father, like I'm thinking, like I can see Jesus sitting on the horizon of my life, looking for me and just like planning the moment that he's going to break into my life and to come mm. take care of me. And, and even just as a wife and a mom, um, for all of us, you know, dads, we, we can have a particular angst in our heart ongoingly, but um, who's going to, you know, are, are those folks in our family who are far from the Lord? I needn't have any angst. This is, this is the God, this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who's constantly searching for us. Uh, he's undertaken the greatest rescue mission of all time. Yeah, and, and we needn't be and every afraid. single person he considers to be his nearest kin. Right. Every person. Yeah. So whoever your loved ones are, mm. whoever you're concerned about, whoever causes you the most anxiety in the world, right? Um, he looks at everybody as his nearest of kin and therefore worth fighting for and worth delivering. Yeah, he's, he is an, a, <clears throat> he's an assassin. <laughs> he's a saboteur. Taking out, taking out the one who is trying to assail me. And I, I felt it this morning coming in, like, I, like Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm facing some things that I just need you to, you to take care of. I'm gonna come, I invite you in. Come, come and rescue me again. From Amen, the powers, brother. You know? From the lies, you know, I was reading this morning just as I was praying this morning, uh, uh, the reality that he's the tempter, mm. right? He's the liar. He's the divider. Like that's a, that's a serious bad actor on the stage that God has come to take care of. So let's look at how Jesus son. does this because so God becomes a man um, to fight, okay? But so the, we've highlighted something of the Lord's power here, but in this next part where we start to look at, at what's going on in the passion and we may be considered by asking the question, so what's happening when Jesus is undergoing his passion? The other thing to highlight here is what I often think of as the, the cleverness of God, right? This is just an astonishing story. The way Lewis put it was, you know, the king, the rightful king has landed in disguise. So he's come into occupied territory um, so as to liberate his people who are held bound by a tyrant. 
Why does he have to come in disguise? Well, he comes in disguise because the enemy who he's trying to deliver us from, uh, while he's not wise, uh, is not stupid. In in other words, um, Satan knows he can't defeat God. So God has to disguise himself so as to engage the enemy in a battle. That's what's going on in the Passion. That's what we want to highlight here. So Mm. try to, if you're in a place where you can look at a crucifix, do that. If you're not, try to picture it in your mind. Or, you know, when you get home, wherever you are, when you're listening to this, look at a cross. And as you look at Jesus on the cross, ask this simple question. Is Jesus on the cross the hunted or the hunter? Or another way to ask that, is Jesus the victim or the aggressor? Now, that would seem to be a kind of a no-brainer question, right? I mean, here's a man who's stark naked, which is how they crucified people in Rome. Nobody had loincloths on. So, like, pretty much every crucifix you've ever seen is wrong in that regard. The whole point of crucifixion is abject humiliation, which takes place on a major thoroughfare where everybody sees it and where the, the crowds are invited to be a part of the ritual humiliation. So here's a man, no clothes on, crowned with thorns, nailed to a tree, bleeding to death. I mean, obviously, Padre, the guy's hunted and he's a victim. Well, are you sure about that? Because who is this? Who is this man who's nailed to the cross? This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the one through whom and for whom everything that exists, exists. That is to say, the one through whom a universe that's 46 billion light years across was made. This is an extraordinary power that's present in this person, right? How in the world could you possibly nail that God to a tree? Like, where would you get that nail? That that, that nail doesn't exist, right? There's no kryptonite for God. (laughs) So the question then would become, well, if the only way for God to get on a tree is he must want to be nailed to the tree, why in the world would Jesus want to be nailed to a cross in this incredibly humiliating, painful manner of death? So let me, let me tell you how I feel like the Lord taught me this, and then let me try to back it up. So uh, almost two years ago now, just before uh, Holy Week, I'm sitting in my chapel. I've been praying frequently with a, a book which has just radically changed my life by a woman named Fleming Rutledge, uh, who we've spoken about before. The book is called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. It's a game changer. I, I mark my life oftentimes by authors that I've encountered and when they've made an impact on me. And this this woman is just exceptional. So I'm reading this book and I'm praying and I'm meditating on the passion at some length. And as I'm sitting there in the chapel, I hear in my mind, and this is often how God speaks to me. I don't have a pipeline to God, but I I, I hear him sometimes, if you will. And I'm sitting there looking at the cross, and I hear these two words, ambush predator. Now, I don't hunt. Um, I don't like the woods. Um, I like to live in golf courses and the beach and you know, and eat nice restaurants. Um, I've never heard of an ambush predator in my life. So I got my phone next to me. I Google ambush predator and up pop a couple of images plus a definition, and I just start to <laughs> laugh out loud. So an ambush predator is a creature which lies motionless and still, camouflaged with its environment. So things like spiders are ambush predators or snakes are ambush predators. They're in the water, they're in the woods. Hopefully they're not in your house and your bed, but they're everywhere, right? And they do this, they lie motionless and still and camouflage with their environment for one reason. 
And the one reason is to attract the prey. So I'm, I'm stunned by this as I'm looking at it. Uh, I'm trying to follow the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I start reflecting on Jesus's passion from the moment of the Garden of Gethsemane onward. So, you know, the Lord's divinity is more or less continually disguised or camouflaged, if you will, throughout his life. Surely he does miracles, but aside from the transfiguration, his divinity never really bursts forth. And even at that moment, it's only Peter, James, and John who see it. From the moment of the Garden of Gethsemane onwards, his divinity is more and more, quote unquote, camouflaged, right? So when he's in the garden, he does what? He begins to sweat blood. So now his, literally his flesh is covered with his blood. Then what happens? He's arrested by the guards that come from the temple. He's chained by those same guards. He's slapped. He's judged by, by Caiaphas, then by Pilate, then by, um, you know, back to Caiaphas. He's stripped of his clothes. He's scourged. He's crowned with thorns. And finally, he's nailed to a cross. Why is this happening? Like, why is God allowing this to take place? I would argue that one of the reasons, one of the reasons, and the one that we don't talk about at all or rarely, is he's doing this for the purpose of attracting the prey. I think Jesus from the cross says to us like no other uh, person, if you will, could say to us, I am the ambush predator. So there, I, I mentioned this is one of the ways to understand the passion. There, there are classically been understood three different approaches to answering the question, what's happening on the cross or what is going on in the passion? So one of the ways to understand that is Jesus on the cross is showing us how much the father loves us. You know, think of, think of the guy with the, the, the rainbow afro behind home plate at every, you know, baseball game or seemingly every sporty event with the big John 316 sign, right? What's John 316? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that the world might not perish, but so that those who believe in him might have everlasting life, right? Is that true? Absolutely, right? Jesus on the cross is showing us how much the Father loves us. But that's not an exhaustive understanding of what's happening on the cross. And some people listening right now, like that moves us mightily. Like, wow, look how much God loves me. Others of us just flies over our head, doesn't make an impact at all. A second way of understanding what's happening on the cross is Jesus on the cross is becoming sin. Like, how do you understand that, right? St. Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin or to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The, The more technical way we talk about this is Jesus on the cross is making atonement for us, meaning On the cross, Jesus is absorbing into his flesh all of the sins or the punishment of all of the sins that every person in the history of the world has committed. I heard a guy, uh, Abbot Jeremy Driscoll, he was teaching me in seminary one time. He says, picture a car crash or a car slamming on its brakes. So when a car slams on its brakes, the first thing it does is it lurches forward and then it immediately lurches backwards, and then finally it begins to just stand still. And he used that as an image of Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross is reaching forward, if you will, into the future, grabbing all of the sins that's ever been 
going to be committed in human history, pulling it to himself. Then he lurches backwards, reaches and grabs all of the sins of everybody who's lived before him, pulls it to himself, and then finally just rests. And so in his flesh, he absorbs into his body all of the punishment of all the billions of people who ever lived. Is that a true way of understanding the passion? Absolutely. But it's not exhaustive either. The third way of understanding the passion, and the way the early church used to speak about it the most, is what we've been arguing, that Jesus on the cross is going to war for us. And we've talked oftentimes amongst ourselves here, I think Mel Gibson in uh, The Passion of the Christ, he, he gives us a, an insight into this, in that really strange scene right after Jesus dies, when uh, Jesus is on the cross, he breathes his last, there's a drop of water, which I, I imagine symbolizes a tear from the Father, falls to the ground, shatters, and then almost immediately you get this bizarre, like one, two-second clip of Satan, who we've been seeing all throughout the movie, standing on like the cracked earth of hell, screaming. And you're like, what the heck is that all about? Well, what is all that about? Well, that's Satan saying something like, oh, nuts. You know, like, what just happened? What did I just do? Why that reaction? Because the way the fathers of the church would talk about Jesus and the passion is, it's only right that he who deceived our race at the beginning of our history should himself be deceived into bringing about his own destruction. So somehow, Satan has no idea what he's doing. He's thinking he's winning by crucifying this person who he, he thinks is a man, right, with godlike powers, but in fact is God camouflaged, and because God can't die, he's now taken God into his kingdom and oh no, like he's destroyed his own kingdom in the process, right? So get a load of this. This is how St. Ephraim, one of the great early church fathers, he, he writes it like this. Death trampled our Lord underfoot, but he, in his turn, treated death as a high road for his own feet. He, Jesus, submitted to it, enduring it willingly, because by this means, he would be able to destroy death in spite of itself. Death had its own way when our Lord went out from Jerusalem carrying his cross. But when by a loud cry from that cross, he summoned the dead from the underworld, death was powerless to prevent it. Death slew him by means of the body which he had assumed, but that same body proved to be the weapon with which he conquered death. Concealed beneath the cloak of his manhood, his godhead engaged death in combat. But in slaying our Lord, death itself was slain. It was able to kill natural human life, but was itself killed by the life that is above the nature of man. Then get a load of this line. Death could not devour our Lord unless he possessed a body. Neither could hell swallow him up unless he bore our flesh. And so he came in search of a chariot in which to ride into the underworld. This chariot was the body which he received from the virgin. And in it, he invaded death's fortress, broke open its strong room, and scattered all its treasure." Think for a moment to the, the last words that Jesus says in the Gospel of John when he's on the cross, that gospel that we hear every Good Friday, when uh, it's chapter 19, verse 30, I believe, where Jesus says, it is finished, right? 
So what does he mean by this? This is not like, man, I'm glad this is finally over. This was painful. Um, the, the Greek word there, right, is this is accomplished. It's fulfilled. It's carried out. It's performed. It's achieved. It's completed. This is a cry of victory in what looks like a moment of extraordinary defeat. And I'll just share this with you real quick. I had a, a friend of mine who used to, he was an insomniac, so he couldn't sleep. So he used to write at night. And he would come up with these amazing, like, one-act dramatic monologues of different figures of Scripture. And one of these he wrote was uh, the Archangel Michael's perspective from a spiritual viewpoint of the crucifixion and what's happening. And so as he writes this, and I think what what the fathers of the church talk about lends credence to this. Because the fathers, it's not just Ephraim that we quoted a moment ago, Gregory of Nyssa talks about Jesus on the cross is, is like a fish hook where his humanity is, is the hook, or rather his, his humanity is the bait and his divinity is the hook. Or St. Augustine talks about the image of a mousetrap where on the cross Jesus' humanity is the cheese, if you will, and his divinity is the bar that comes crashing down on the enemy's head. So th- it, this is a very patristic image that we're trying to put forth here of what Jesus is doing on the cross. Anyway, my friend Mike... He would describe uh, in this little uh, fictional piece, which has scriptural backing, the demons behind the different figures around the foot of the cross, you know, tempting the people to taunt Jesus or to mock Jesus. And then that goes on for some time. And then and then the, the demons begin to shudder themselves. It begins to get darker and darker. And Satan himself shows up and he's standing right in front of Jesus. And he just lets loose on Jesus as Jesus is nailed there. You know, you failure, you loser, you total nothing. You know, you had this great prospect for the future. It's all for nothing right now. Don't you realize that it's all going to come to an end? All your followers have abandoned you. It's a waste. Your whole life is a waste. And soon you'll be mine because no one can escape death. And as my friend was writing this, this whole time, Jesus's head is down. And then finally, Jesus just raises his head and interrupts Satan as he's speaking. And he looks at him with this almost mocking grin and says to Satan, it is finished. And he dies. And with that death, what happens then? He enters into hell. And he enters into hell to liberate it to bind the strong man, to assail him, to overcome him so that his possessions, that's you and me, we can go free. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross. Wow. <laughs> I, um, Mary, I don't know what you're experiencing right now, but I'm like... So I'm sitting here, Nick, like, so you said, like, like we, we swim in this, Right. But yeah. we know the gospel's power, and so every time you hear the word of God proclaimed in that way and what God has done for us, you just find yourself overcome again. So I've been sitting here with my eyes closed yeah. as if I'm sitting uh, in a church, right? And I'm going, yeah. Lord, show me what you're doing here. So mm. this is kind of an unexpected thing that the Lord just brought to my mind, an image of mm. um, the, the the Marine Corps Memorial in Arlington, Virginia, uh, that, that honors... Uh, the battle at Iwo Jima, and they're raising the American flag. This whole battle imagery, I'm surprised, right? For me as a woman, I go, like, that's really 
that's really powerful for me. Like, like, like that second way of understanding the passion becoming sin. Like that's how I saw the passion of the Christ when I first went to go watch the, you know, the mm, movie. Yeah. I went there by myself and just being overwhelmed by what God did for me. And it was so hard to watch. And so that's still really important. Uh, that still informs what the Lord has done in my life. But this is brand new ambush predator, right? That's crazy. I've never <laughs> thought about it in that way in my life, Nick. I, no, it's so true. And uh, to be sure, right, like the consequence of sin Jesus is taking upon himself. What is owed to me, what I, what I deserve, right. he has taken. And so to, to look at the cross and be in awe and gratitude and, and like, you know, humble surrender, if you will, just like, Lord, thank you for taking what I deserve. But you're absolutely right. That image of ambush predator <laughs> it's just awesome. It's like, <laughs> like, Lord, thank you. Thank you for being so creative. I mean, I'm, I'm, as I'm hearing this, I'm just thinking about how creative God is, yeah. that he would, he would undo our enemy in the same way our enemy did us in, deceived, you know, deceived us. And so that's just, that's just amazing. And it's remember, amazing. as we, I think we mentioned last time, right, the, the question comes up again, like, but why? Mm. Like, why is he doing this, right? And so keep going back to the answer at the heart of the gospel, right? That I think it's George Weigel who says, you know, the, the gospel message really is this, is this simple. You are far, far, far more important than you ever dared to imagine. Why? Because you're worth the trouble. You are personally, whoever you are listening to this right now, of God leaping down from his throne, taking flesh and going to battle for you and for me against an opponent we could never compete against. You know, in other words, as we said again, you know, the, the heart of the gospel is you matter. So whatever's causing you anxiety right now, whatever it is that the enemy's trying to bind you up with, just understand that. Look at a cross or picture the cross. You matter to God so much that he's done this. And you might still be experiencing struggles right now in your life. We're going to talk about this next time. You know, th this is not... Uh, this is not some naive, okay, well, everything's still kind of messed up or so it looks like we want to try to make sense of that. But know that the victory is won and Satan knows it. Satan knows he's lost. And our task right now is as we think of this and hear this to ask ourselves, how should we respond? Like what difference does this make in my life? And then Lord, what do you want me to do with the rest of my life? So remember right now, whatever it is that's going on in your life, do not be afraid. God is with you. You were born for this. <laughs>